Well, if you would, just grab your Bibles and make your way back to Psalm 119. This will likely be the third to last time, I think, we'll be asking you to turn there for our adult study here on Wednesday nights as we bring this series to a close. But for tonight, I, um, I want to focus our attention uh, to verses 161 to 168, the second to last paragraph. We'll be considering the Sheen stanza tonight, a section that I've simply titled, Those Who Love God's Word. Those Who Love God's Word. Psalm 119, verses 161 to 168, and if you're there, follow along with me as I read the text to begin with that loud for us. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great spoil. I hate and despise falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you because of your righteous ordinances. Those who love your law have great peace, and nothing causes them to stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies, and I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and your testimonies, for all my ways are before you. Uh, You don't have to answer out loud yet. Interaction will come later, but just think about this in your mind for a moment. If someone were to ask you, how do you know If you love the Word of God, how would you answer? How do you know if you love God's Word? Is it those who read God's Word who love it? Is it those who think often about it who love it? Is it those who are most familiar with its contents? Is it those who have multiple physical copies of it in their homes with protective cases and covers and all different versions and highlighters and study Bibles? Is it those who went to school to study it? How do you know? What is the true measure? What are the real marks of someone who loves the Scriptures? I believe that this stanza is going to provide us with an answer to this question, I believe this passage paints for us a clear picture of someone who truly loves the Word of God, and we would do well to measure ourselves against it. But before we jump in, why frame it up this way? Why focus on love for God's Word? Well, I want to show this to you briefly as has been my pattern at least uh, anytime we do studies like this on Wednesday nights. It's true that love for God's Word has already been a theme throughout this psalm. You probably know that as we've walked through it. It's a psalm, after all, that so magnificently extols the glory of God's Word to us. So how can we not love it? In fact, the Hebrew word for love has already been used in this psalm. We can count it nine times in reference to God's word prior to this second to last stanza. But notice here, 
put it up there for you. In this first slide, I highlighted them that love for God's word is specifically mentioned three times in just eight verses. So 163, 165, and 167, which happens to be the most frequency of that term for God's word in all of Psalm 119. And consider the progression here of these explicit declarations of the psalmist's love for God's word. The psalmist says, verse 163, simply, I love your law. He then makes a more general statement in, Psalm 16, uh, in verse 165 about those, those who love God's law. And finally, 167, he concludes by intensifying his first profession, I love them. But not just that, I love them exceedingly. Therefore, this, the theme, I think it's clear, of this particular stanza is love for God's Word. In fact, you could say it this way, this stanza is a declaration of the psalmist's love for the Word of God because another interesting observation here, I don't know if you noticed this, what is not present in this psalm or in this stanza that is and has been in many other stanzas, there are no prayer requests. There are no petitions found at all in this particular stanza. Only statements, only declarations. This is the psalmist's declaration of love to God's Word after 21, I believe, if I'm counting right, stanzas extolling the glory of it. So tonight, we're going to learn from the psalmist's declaration of love for God's Word. But how should we outline this passage? How do we understand its structure? Well, I mentioned three explicit declarations of love for God's Word, falling into three uses of the Hebrew verb to love. So as you can imagine, as you can tell already on the slide, this lends itself into three statements that we can organize this text around. But more specifically... I want you to notice in this next slide how at the heart of this, see the heart, see what I did there? At the heart, the center of this psalm, of, or this stanza, these eight verses, is verse 165, which just so happens to be the only verse in this stanza, and you maybe noticed it when I read it, without a personal statement by the psalmist regarding his own relationship to God's Word. Did you notice that? All of the other personal statements I actually bolded, I don't know if you can see that, uh, bolded in, in the text. Instead, what we find in, at the heart here in verse 165 is rather a proverbial promise for all those who love God's law. And then on both sides of that, we find Two sections lined with the psalmist's personal practices. So, if you count 165 as the chief standalone pinnacle mark of this psalm, at the front side of the mountain, 161 through 164, and the back side of the mountain, 166 to 168, we end up with three main outline points. And so, for the rest of our time, and this is how we're going to walk through it. We're going to draw out from this stanza three marks of those who love God's Word. 
those who love God's word prioritize or prefer the word to, to everything else in this life. Verses 161 to 164, a front side of that mountain. Those who love God's word prosper from the word, verse 165. And those who love God's word pursue or persevere in God's word, verses 166 to 168. So that's going to be our outline for this evening. Now consider with me then first, the first mark of those who love God's word. The first mark is this, that well, they prioritize and prefer the word over everything else in this life. That is what love does, right? When you love something, when you love someone supremely, you will prioritize it. You will prioritize them. You will prefer them over and even against every other even important thing in this life, right? Notice how the psalmist says this in verse 161. Those who truly love God's word prioritize and prefer it over rulers, we'll just say. He writes, princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. Now, the only other reference to the psalmist's enemies as princes in this in Psalm 119 is found way back in verse 23 where they were said to merely sit and talk against him. Well, something has changed uh, in the progression here of the psalm. Apparently, their plotting, the psalmist enemy's plotting, gave way to actual pursuing, which tells us that the situation had grown worse for this psalmist. Their hostile policies, we could even say, were no longer theoretical. The legislation had been passed, and now they were officially coming after him. Uh, Princes here refer to high-ranking leaders, rulers, chiefs, and government officials, usually those with a measure of earthly authority and power who can make good on their threats. So these aren't empty promises. They were actually coming after him. This was the psalmist's plight. And can you imagine it? How frightful it could be. It's hard for us in America, isn't it? But not too hard anymore. He said, it's one thing to be persecuted by random citizens or by your neighbor has no authority, but it is, it is yet another thing to be persecuted by those who are supposed to be coming to your aid when you're being treated unjustly. When government becomes corrupt, there's no other earthly recourse or appeal or protection. That's a terrifying situation. But that is also the, the psalmist adds here, though, in the first line that this persecution from these rulers was without cause, meaning it was unfounded, unwarranted, it was for nothing and for no good reason. Literally, the word means out of favor, as if 
They did this not out of obligation, but rather out of the goodness of their heart, they were persecuting him. It's actually related to the word grace, meaning this persecution was not deserved. It was without legitimate grounds, payment, or cause. They were persecuting him, we could say, graciously and freely. So this hostility, the psalmist says here, was unprovoked. He did nothing whatsoever to earn it, and there was no good reason behind it. How would you respond in this situation? Look, there's no reasoning with these leaders that you're a good citizen, that it's actually Christianity and and the church, they're good for society. There's no reasoning with them coming after you. How would you respond? But notice how the psalmist responds here. Look at verse 1, the second line of verse 161. But even in light of that situation, my heart stands in awe. Or literally, I think better yet, in dread or fear. And you say, well, yes, of course. But look, look at what the object is. It is of your words. Not of the rulers, not of the danger, but of God's word. In a moment when the temptation to fear earthly rulers and authorities was the greatest, the psalmist here declares that there's actually something in his mind more awful than what these princes could threaten to do to him. That is specifically dishonoring the word of God. Or to borrow the simple words of one commentator, against the fear of man, there is no adequate argument but the fear of God. So this is such a helpful principle here. After all, listen, Jesus himself taught it in Matthew 10, 28. You remember? Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear God, fear him who's able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And Spurgeon puts it this way, how little do crowns and scepters become in the judgment of the man who perceives a more majestic royalty in the commands of his God. We are not likely to be disheartened by persecution or driven by it into sin. Listen, Christian, if the word of God continually has supreme power over our minds, beloved, if you love the word that much, If you fear the word to that degree, you will not fear what man can do to you. Let me ask you this evening, does the word of God hold that kind of sway in your life and in your mind and in your heart? Do you love it so as to fear above anything else? violating it more than you fear what princes and rulers might do to you, what your teacher might say about you, what your friends might think about you? Do you esteem the ordinances of God over the opinions of men? You see, here the psalmist plainly considered the authority of God's Word as far greater than the dictates of earthly kings and rulers. He revered the law of his heavenly king higher than the laws of any earthly official. 
But not only that, notice verse 162. Not only did he prioritize and prefer the word over rulers, notice the psalmist prioritized and preferred the word over riches. Not just earthly rulers and powers, but over earthly riches and prosperity. Notice what he says in the next verse. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great spoil. That's interesting here. Just just to observe from the movement from 161 to 162 initially that mixed in, listen, mixed into love for God's Word is both fear and joy. Isn't that interesting? That they're not at odds with one another. They coexist as mutual, complementary, appropriate, affectionate responses to the Word of God. But how exactly then should we understand the joy described here that the psalmist has over the Word? First, notice here, this is a persistent joy. The use of the participle here for rejoicing uh, communicates a state of continual and habitual kind of joy. In other words, this is not a fleeting or fickle momentary feeling like our emotions can sometimes be. This is a steady, sustained state of joy that characterized the psalmist. But not only was it persisted, it was also transcendent because it does not depend on earthly experiences or material success. But lastly, notice it is also hard-fought or triumphant. It's persistent, it's transcendent, and triumphant. Or it came at the cost of great struggle. Why do I say that? Well, this joy is, um, the word here is not so much describing a joy that comes from something like just happen, having to win the lottery, but rather the word here, it's the joy is more like that which comes from winning the war. Not winning the lottery, but winning the war. Because the word here for spoils refers actually to the spoils of war and not just any kind of riches but that specifically which is plundered as the result of victory in battle. So think about that picture for a moment. And Spurgeon applies it so well to the imagination. He says this, he compares his joy to that of one who has been long in battle and has at last won the victory and is now dividing the spoil. Think about about that. What that implies, the the prophets made, he says, in searching the Scriptures then, were greater than the trophies of war. Do you approach Bible study that way, Christian? Do you love God's Word? Charles Bridges adds this then, this expressive image may remind us that the spoils of this precious Word are not to be gained without conflict. You know this well in your own experience, don't you? It's hard to study Scripture. Everything about us and out there mitigates against it, right? 
What joy then it is to conquer a passage and to find their riches. Do you love it? Do you love it so? Do you prioritize and prefer the Word of God over all the riches this world has to offer? Is the joy it brings you persistent, transcendent, and triumphant? You see, so far we might summarize these first two verses this way. In verse 161, love for God's Word is demonstrated when we prefer it to all this world can take from us in this life. Whereas verse 162, love for God's word is demonstrated when we prefer it to all this world can give to us in this life. And both, we prioritize and prefer the word of God. But the psalmist continues, notice verse 163, that those who love the word of God prioritize and prefer it not just to rulers and to riches, but to any kind of wrongdoing and wrong thinking. Verse 163, he writes, I hate and despise falsehood, but I love your law. Now, perhaps it only makes sense to us that love for God's truth means that we have an equal and opposite affection or Hatred for all error, those two things seem to make sense to go hand in hand, and they should. But listen, in a pluralistic society and a postmodern culture, you would be surprised how many Christians don't understand this, or don't live like this, or don't believe this. Be surprised how many people say, that we can love Jesus and love Buddha too, or Muhammad. We can love the Bible and esteem the Quran. That just because you prefer one, look, doesn't mean, look, by all means, that you can't also prefer the other, lest we become narrow minded bigots. That, that each perspective has its own place and equal authority. Yes, appreciate the Bible. Love Jesus. But that doesn't rule out love to these other things. None are to receive priority over another to, or to the exclusion of the other. Well, look, that was not the case for the psalmist. Because he loved the word of God, Spurgeon says, falsehood in doctrine, in life, and in speech, in any form or shape, had become utterly detestable to him. Plumer writes, God's word is truth. And think about this. Here is the logic then. It's preeminently truth. And he who loves truth must hate a lie. Listen, beloved, if we, want, if we find that we are tolerant of even the smallest error and evil, it is possible, at least, that we do not love God's law as we should. Because these two principles rise and fall together. Love to God's Word means preferring it over every wrong. Love of the truth means hating falsehood. 
But finally, notice in verse 164 that those who love God's Word not only prioritize it over rulers, riches, and wrong, but also routine. Routine. You say, what, what is that supposed to mean? Well, notice verse 164. He says this, seven times a day, I praise you because of your righteous ordinances. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, well, seven times a day certainly sounds like routine to me. (laughs) That's because we aren't as familiar with Hebrew idioms, I think. In other words, I don't believe it was the psalmist's intention here uh, in the language to, to encourage a strict schedule and adherence to a specific number of formal acts of worship throughout the day as though the routine of it was the issue and was the point. You know, like, hey, take up your 24 hours, divide them up in seven by seven, uh, and that's, that's, that, those are the times, right, when you should set aside what you do. That's the routine. How many of you do that? Probably Nobody. Rather, the expression here seven times a day, I think, is not to be taken literally or numerically, but proverbially and symbolically to just mean a lot. A lot and very often because the number seven was the number of completeness or fullness. i just give you one easy example. Luke 17 verse 4. Jesus, you remember uh, teaching on forgiveness. If he sins, if your brother sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times a day saying, I repent, forgive him. You know, Jesus is not saying, look, at time number eight, it's over. No forgiveness. And in the same way, that is, I believe, how the psalmist is using the phrase here. In other words, here the psalmist is simply saying that he does this a lot. Praise is constantly on his lips continually, it's frequently, it's repeatedly, it's incessantly, it's very often throughout the day, he is breaking out into worship of his God. Matthew Henry writes, not only every day, but often every day. But, I mean, can we press on this? How often is very often? I actually think the psalmist gives us a further hint here in the second line. Notice when he writes this, because of your righteous ordinances, or literally, it's just a prepositional phrase, over or upon the judgments of your righteousness. In other words, any time that he comes across or thinks about or meditates on the righteous judgments of God. That's when he bursts forth in praise. Uh, The word here for judgments is that synonym for God's word that refers to God's decisions, his decrees, whatever verdict God has ordained and declared. In other words, whenever the psalmist would be reminded, think about this, of such judgments, either through his reading or his meditation on God's word, he very often would, indeed seven times a day, burst out in spontaneous praise and worship. Listen, does this describe your relationship to the Scriptures? Do you find yourself so very often in a day, as the psalmist did here, interrupted in your daily routine by a response of praise in your heart because God brought something to mind about 
and from his word. The Christians, we, we, should, we should be always meditating on truth. And if we're always meditating on truth, then the heart's response of someone who loves the word of God is, is this. It is worship all the time. Or do you think of worship only as something you do on Sundays? You know, you come here to praise God. Spurgeon writes cleverly with the modern play on the psalmist's words, do we praise God seven times in a day? Or do we only praise him once in seven days? It's a good question for us to ask ourselves. So the first mark of those who love God's word is that they prioritize and prefer the word of God over rulers, over riches, over wrongs, and over routine. Okay? But notice with me the second mark then as we move on here. The second mark of those who love God's word is that they not only prioritize and prefer the word of God, but that they also prosper from it. They prosper or profit from it. That is verse 165, the heart and center of this stanza. We read it earlier. Those who love your law have great peace, and nothing causes them to stumble. What a great promise, Christian. This is a good verse to put to heart, to put to memory. See so here, as we noted earlier, this psalmist, for a brief moment, lays aside all of his personal language, right? He ceases just for a moment in this one verse and stops giving us personal testimony. And, and for one verse, he sets in stone a universal principle for all believers that there is indeed great prosperity to be had for those who love God's law. You can take that to the bank. The language here is that of a proverbial promise, and it lays out this blessed condition by describing it in two particular ways, one positive and one negative, what these people have, in other words, and what they do not have. They are two sides, though, of the same coin. And much like the joy that we described earlier, this prosperity is not a temporal or material prosperity, but you'll notice as we get into it, it is rather a spiritual and a moral Prosperity. Notice first the positive side of this prosperity in the first line of verse 165. The psalmist describes it as great peace. They have peace as their possession. Spurgeon adds a peace too great for this little world to break. Aren't you thankful for that, Christian? This peace, or shalom, includes what Calvin describes as a tranquil state of conscience and serenity of mind, but the Hebrew idea is even broader than that, and it encompasses the highest state of prosperity, wholeness, well-being, and blessing 
that anyone can experience in this life and the next. In many cases, really to the Jew, this shalom was a synonym really for salvation. And not just like what we think of when we think peace, right? We think of peace sometimes in our Western culture too much as just the absence of chaos, right? You moms just want a little peace and quiet. What we mean by that is just absence of chaos sometimes, but it is far more than that in the Hebrew mind. And what is this peace specifically? I would argue here in the context, it is actually moral courage, protection, and comfort experienced, listen to this, in the midst of trial and temptation. In fact, notice the negative side then of this peace and prosperity because I think that'll help us understand it. And the psalmist adds in the second line, and nothing causes them to stumble. Or literally, they have no stumbling block. They have peace, but they have no stumbling. In other words, we could call this, this side of that prosperity protection and preservation. That's the flip side of biblical peace. You see, the psalmist, notice what the psalmist doesn't say. He doesn't say that nothing causes them trouble or trial or difficulty in this life. I mean, obviously not, since the psalmist here testifies himself that he was being persecuted and pursued by princes. But rather, the promise here is Nothing causes them to stumble or to fall so as to be spiritually ruined. The word here for stumbling was used quite literally of something like a rock or a snare that was placed intentionally to cause a blind person to trip and fall, which was a punishable offense in Leviticus 19 verse 14. You think, who would do that? Well, of course, they should be punished. That was literally what this word was used to refer to. But more figuratively then, we can understand naturally how this word became um, something to refer to an occasion for stumbling then, an occasion for failure or offense or for scandal. In other words, this is anything that might bring us to spiritual ruin or cause us to fail and to fall morally. That's what the psalmist says, we as Christians are protected against by our love for the truth. That's that's what is included in this piece. This is anything that would trip us up in the Christian walk or divert us from the path of righteousness. In other words, Beloved, here's the, just to put it succinctly, the contrast here is not peace versus chaos. It's actually peace versus moral disaster. It's peace versus defection. It's peace versus a life of falling into sin. And so one writer says that the idea here is that the best preservative against temptation is a love to God's commandments. Look, that is still true today, right? Not just familiarity with God's commands, but a love for it, a love for them. See what the psalmist is saying now then? See what this prosperity 
included, that prosperity which belonged to those who love God's word. For those who love the word of God, they have great peace and a sure footing in the midst of their earthly troubles because with God's word they possess a clear conscience and moral courage and they're protected from every kind of sin and stumbling. What prosperity Isaiah 26 verse 3 says this, the steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. John Phillips writes, neither situations nor scholars nor sovereigns nor sinners can make this person stumble. One more quote. I think this is good just to keep pressing on this. Listen to this. Christian, no external troubles can rob them of this great peace. No offenses or stumbling blocks which are thrown in their way by persecution or temptation, by the malice of enemies or by the apostasy of friends, by anything which they see, hear of, or feel can detain or divert them from their course. Heavenly love surmounts every obstacle and runs with delight the way of God's commandments. Do you want that? Do you want that kind of security? Do you want that kind of assurance? Do you want that kind of confidence and peace? 1 John 2.10, the one who loves his brother abides in the light and there's no cause for stumbling in him. It's just one more implication to be had under this point though. I just couldn't help but think about this then. On the flip side of this, look, here's what we can conclude then. To walk the way of sin and to give in to stumbling is to have very little peace in this life. So the Bible affirms that as well. The way of the sinner is hard, Proverbs 13, 15. There's no peace for the wicked, Isaiah 48, 22. Calvin would put it this way simply, those who are not devoted to God are miserable. So you can tell your unbelieving friends next time, look, you think sin is going to bring you joy and peace and satisfaction. It's the exact opposite. So my friend, are you searching for peace this evening? Look, you can have it. You can have it beyond measure if you would just come to love God and his word. And for you, Christian, do you want to know if you love the Word of God, how spiritually and morally secure are you in the face of many trials and difficulties? Do you rest with a tranquil heart and a clear conscience knowing that God's truth is sufficient to protect you through many dangers, toils, and snares? Do you have peace in the midst of trouble? So we've seen that those who love God's word prioritize and prefer the word over everything else, and they prosper from the word in the midst of trial and difficulty. Well, third and final mark then of those who love God's word is that they pursue and persevere in the word. They pursue and persevere in the word. You see, when you love something or when you love someone, you will inevitably 
passionately and persistently pursue it, won't you? You, you know what they call uh, that quote-unquote love that, it, that only comes and then it's quickly gone? Anybody? If you apply it to like romantic relationships, what would you call that? Infatuation. Look, we don't want to be infatuated with the word. We want to truly love it. Do you pursue and persevere in the Word of God? You know, notice in these last three verses, the reason why I, I, I labeled it that is that all the verbs here express a kind of personal, ongoing commitment and clinging to the Word of God. See, notice, notice first verse 166, that those who love God's Word pursue it, persevere in it from full assurance of faith. Notice what the psalmist says, I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. Now, we can't get this order wrong. This is very important. You see, those, those who love God's Word do indeed end up performing God's will, right? Jesus made that connection. If you love me, what? You'll keep my commandments. And that's the same conclusion that the psalmist has here, but we can't ignore the significant cause behind the psalmist's obedience found here in the first line. The order is absolutely critical. Notice, the psalmist declares first, I hope for your salvation, O Lord. That is, beloved, the ground of his obedience, the fountain from which flows his doing. You see? And that, has, that is the biblical teaching, that it is the language here, the first half of verse 166 is the language of full assurance of faith. Because hope, as I'm sure you're aware, in Scripture is not wishing upon a star. Rather, hope, a biblical hope, is certainty about the future because of faith in God's promises. So essentially, what is the psalmist saying here? What is his logic? The psalmist is implying, look, this: I do your commandments because... I hope in your salvation. Look, this is 1 John 3, 3 all over again. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Here, as with everywhere else in Scripture, obedience is found to be the fruit of real saving faith. And so Charles Bridges is helpful when he writes this, we cannot... Therefore, do His commandments without a hope for His salvation. When therefore our hope is indistinct, we are almost left to our own unassisted resources. And I love how he puts this. Active devotedness flows from assured acceptance. I'll read it again. Active devotedness flows from assured acceptance. Where there is no certainty, there can be little love, little delight, little diligence. Let us walk in sunshine, and we shall work cheerfully and honorably for God. See, that is 
the source, you could say, of our obedience and our love that demonstrates itself in obedience in this pursuit and perseverance in the Word of God. But notice next in verses uh, in verse 167 that those who love God's Word also pursue and persevere in keeping it with a whole heart. Look at what the psalmist says. Look at how he puts it. My soul keeps your testimonies, and I love them exceedingly. Instead of just saying, uh, I keep your testimonies, notice the psalmist puts it more poetically, my soul, uh, implying a wholehearted, whole-souled, with all that I am kind of internal obedience to God's Word, not just mere external conformity or lip service. And, and then the verb to keep here, I think, teaches and stresses even the same idea. It stresses careful attention for the purpose of guarding. Thomas Brooks writes this. It signifies to keep as men keep prisoners, and to keep as a watchman keeps the city or the garrison. Yea, to keep as a man would keep his very life. That's the idea. With what kind of energy and focus are you doing that? In other words, this is the watchful, vigilant side of obedience. We could even say this kind of obedience treasures the Word of God and keeps watch over the truth in the same way that men guard that which is most precious to them. The psalmist says here, he does it with all his soul, with all his might. That's how. Not just from full assurance of faith, but with a whole heart. He is all in. He's single-minded in this pursuit. But finally, notice the last verse, verse 168, those who love God's Word pursue and persevere in keeping it, and this is such a helpful truth, before the face of God, or in the Latin, as we've all become familiar with, because of, thanks to Danny, the quorum Deo, right? Before God, that's how he lives, that's how he pursues obedience. That's how, listen, that's how the psalmist can continue at all times to obey and to strive to keep the Word of God. He does it because he's always reminded of this truth that God is always watching. That is, he says, verse 168, I keep your precepts and your testimonies. He repeats that line and adds your testimonies. But I, I keep them for, why? Here's, here's the reason. For all my ways are before you. What a most helpful and practical doctrine for the Christian life that we might live quorum Deo in the presence of Almighty God, convinced that He sees, convinced that He knows. The psalmist reminds us that here that everything we do and say and think, listen, that's encompassed in all our ways. 
we do and say and think in the presence of our omniscient, omnipresent, almighty creator and judge. Do you believe that? Christian, do you think, are you, do you sometimes imagine that there are moments in time, places in life where you are not seen by your Father in heaven? Last quote from Charles Bridges, he says this then. When therefore I'm about to venture upon any line of conduct, let me consider the watchful eye that pierces into the deepest recesses of my thoughts and brings, as it were, to daylight my principles, my motives, and my ends. Above all, let me ever recollect that He, before whom are all my ways, is He that hung upon the cross for my sins. Let me then walk as if He were standing before me in all the endearing obligations of His love. Do you live this way? Christian, do you love the Word of God? How would you know that? Well, here we see three marks of those who love God's Word. They prioritize the Word over rulers, riches, wrongs, and routine. They prosper from the Word, that is, they have peace and protection against sin and temptation. And they pursue or persevere in keeping the Word from full assurance of faith with a whole heart and before the face of God. Do you love the Word of God? Well, that's uh, the, the text as we've walked through it. I have a few questions here in the remaining time that we have um, that we can interact on here as has been our habit and practice. So, Yeah, there. Uh, we're going to try something new, by the way, tonight. So, uh, if if you have a comment or you'd like to answer um, these strong, fast young men here, are going to run these mics to you so that, uh, especially out in the lobby and even I think on the live stream, um, those can be heard in case I forget to repeat them. So. All right, let's just do these one at a time. I think I have a total of maybe five of them. We'll see if we can get through them. I think we have enough time here. But what other, what other passages then of Scripture speak about love for God's Word, and what can we learn from them? And, and, and I put this question in here because, you know, after you walk through a passage and you draw out the theology, it's sometimes helpful in the Christian life to then begin to connect that teaching to other places that teach the same thing. So, um, we want a biblical theology and a systematic theology as well. So, what other passages, guys, can you think of in Scripture that speak about love for God's Word and be prepared? I'm going to ask you, you can read it, but then I'm going to ask you, what do, you, what do we learn from those other texts that that then maybe, maybe even relate to what we've learned tonight. Anybody? Nobody wants the mic put in their face. Other passages of love to God's Word. Are, are there? I'm sure that, yes. Scott and Dane, whoever gets the mic first. I don't know that love is in 
there specifically, but Psalm 19, um, mm -hmm. talking about God's word, all the descriptions of it, but then um, verses 10 and 11, they're, you know, God's truth to be desired more than gold. Yes. Which brought up in today, you know, tonight's verse, sweeter than honey in the honeycomb. So, and what, and what can be learned, you know, right in there is the, the perfect law revives the soul, makes the simple wise, rejoices the heart, enlightens the eyes, etc. Yeah. He provides for us in Psalm 19 a ton of reasons why we should love the Word of God, right? Yeah, absolutely. Because of how effectual it is for us and how sufficient it is. But yeah, you, you point out that, you know, I, I tried to be careful early in my introduction to say that explicitly in Psalm 119, there were nine other times prior to this stanza where love for the Word, the specific verb, Ahav, right, in the Hebrew for love, is used of God's Word. But there are other places where the language is of love and, and a strong desire for the Word of God. Uh, I just didn't count those, okay? Uh, Dane. Well, I was going to take one of those other stanzas in Psalm 119. Is that fair? That's, so che that's cheating. <laughs> yes, you can. Go ahead and read it for us. Sure. Verses 10 and 11. Yeah. With my whole heart, I have sought you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I may not sin against you. Yeah. And I think it speaks for itself. If we have God's word in our heart, it helps us to steer clear from sin. Sure. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, that's, uh, that's not, again, explicitly even using the, the word for love there, but it's implied, right, that you're treasuring as some translations might put it in there, the word of God in your heart, um, and that that love for God's word crowds out lesser loves, the love for sin, sure. Any other passages on love for God's word? Joel, hang on one second. Run, quickly. Um, again, it doesn't speak specifically uh, to loving God's Word, but to treasuring it um, and valuing it. Second uh, Peter 1, uh, verse 19, Peter is talking about seeing Jesus transfigured on the mountain. Uh, and he says in verse 19, And we have as more sure the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place. So, He's saying that even though he saw Jesus transfigured on the, on the mount there, the word that we have here is even more certain than that. Mm -hmm. And we will do well to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dark place that will, again, in Psalm 119, it's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path to keep us from stumbling. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, Peter also has, uh, in First Peter 2, I'm thinking of, right, uh, verses 1, through three, that language of, again, not explicitly loving, but it's implied that we're to, like newborn babies, long, is long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it we may grow in respect to our salvation, if we've tasted the kindness of the Lord. So, what does that tell us? And even what does, what has our passage told us about how that love for God's word is acquired. It's not one of my questions, but I just thought of it, and I think it's important to mention. 
How, how would you say, what would you say is necessary for someone to love the Word of God? Anybody? Is that something you can just kind of muster up on your own? Gracie? I think the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, good answer. Yeah, I'm thinking specifically regeneration, right? If it's implied in even 1 Peter 2, we're to long for it as newborn babes. We must be born again from above. We have to have new appetites, new desires, a new affection. There is a sense in which, look, love for the Word of God begins at salvation, at conversion, right? So um, I think that's really important to remember. Okay. I wanted to press on this a little bit more because it was so compelling to me, you know, that little word study on the word spoils, the spoils of war. How might the analogy and the picture and the illustration of rejoicing over the spoils of war change the way you approach Bible study? You know, I love hidden in Scripture are all these little word pictures that teach us. Um, how might that change the way you approach Bible study? Anybody? Yeah, like how, how is uh, the riches, like you're rejoicing over the riches of, say, um, your study uh, in the same way that someone would rejoice when they've conquered an enemy after a long struggle and a long battle? How might that inform the way you, th- you think about studying the Bible? Is that question not making sense? Michael, yeah, that's a good comment. Say it again in the mic. It would uh, increase your diligence to study the Word. Yeah, it would increase your diligence. Determination. Yes. Yeah, I mean, isn't it true, and sadly so, that so often we approach that as though it should come easy to us? Like, we, we we think wrongly and I think sometimes because we believe or we, we know theologically, like, a, like we just clarified, that, oh, well, I'm a Christian, I have a new love, I have a new appetite, it should be like, oh, automatic. But then when we come to it and it's not, then uh, our experience sometimes causes us to waver a little bit. But, but I, I love how the picture, at least, Helps us to do away with that lie. Ben? So you're saying everything that gets in the way of that battle is the enemy, yeah. right? Yes. So not everything, but some things get in the way and we still love this. In the moment, people. yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, so no, I, I, I think this, and this holds to, and I can't think of the scripture right off, off the top of my head, but, um, uh, but I, think, uh, I think more of uh, the, the way it's described by... Um, um, by Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress, the struggle for salvation as well. Mm-hmm. So there's that struggle uh, when we reach salvation and, and that and, and, and that 
in the same way we struggle with achieving the spoils of war in our Bible reading mm-hmm. uh, each day. And so there, there's that, there's that connection there with, yeah, <clears throat> with that struggle. Yeah, there's this thing called what Peter calls fleshly lusts, which wage war against your soul. You know that that that's that's a thing, <laughs> and the the and and the devil that prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, that's that's also a thing, <laughs> and so there is much opposition. Satan would love, listen, to hinder you or cause you to give up in your study of Scripture. And so, keep at it. Listen, and, and sometimes, you know, when I tell people, and when I've taken people, even guys who aren't in seminary, through language classes and diagramming and verbs and nouns and you know, English grammar, and it's hard for some, especially more than others, but I have to remind them it's worth, it's worth the struggle, um, even at that practical level. So, yeah, Adam? Yeah, turn yourself on there. <laughs> Is that working? The sound guy can't figure yeah, it out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I was thinking... Uh, when you were going through that spoils of war, kill or be killed, um, Christ said, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth Mm -hmm. and a sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. So those were the things that were going through my mind. Sure. With that. Yeah, I think often of the language of what, that's the language of John Owen and the mortification of sin, right? Be killing sin or sin will be killing you, right? And we do that we put to death the deeds of the flesh according to and with the word of God, the weapon, the sword of the spirit, right? So, yeah, good. Um, did you have one more on this? We got to move on, Nathan. Go ahead. I would think if I had a, a treasure chest and a lot of jewels and, and all types of things in it, I would want to check out everything that's in it. So I would think part of it is not just skimming the Bible for the good parts or the fun parts, but reading all, all the other things that you don't hear about yeah. ne- necessarily. Yeah. No, that's a great implication. You know, I would say, personally, the same was true about my study in Psalm 119. I don't know what Danny and Carrie have felt and an experienced in this, but, you know, I don't know if you, prior to this study in this series, I've read through it, and I've just thought, man, there was a part of me that was like, this is just the same stuff over and over again. <laughs> and in some ways it is, but then I get into this stanza. I get into the next stanza. And I'm like, and I'm just, I'm thrilled each and every time I get to teach to see connections that are unique and emphases that are unique uh, to each stanza. And it's really rich. Um, so, but that takes some work. Uh, not just the obvious portions of Scripture. Good. Um, are there other biblical examples of living life before the presence of God to keep us from sinning? Anybody? Any other passages, biblical examples of this? I'm really forcing y- y- your skill of cross-referencing tonight. Testing the Bible knowledge. 
Anybody have anything? Scott? Wait for it. Just Just thinking of Joseph um, and Potiphar's wife, you know? Yep. Far be it for me, you know, to sin against my God. Yes. That was before him, even though this temptation was there, his focus was right ahead of time. Yeah. Genesis 39. Go and read it. He has this God consciousness about him that keeps him from doing that, right? Really good example. Yeah, that was the first one that popped into my mind as well. Any others? We won't camp out on this too long. Yeah, John? This is from the cross reference. <laughs> uh, Job 24, 23. He provides them with security and they are supported and his eyes are on their ways. And then Psalm 139, verse 3. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Yep. Yeah, Psalm 139 is just, uh, you know, a foundational passage for that particular doctrine, right? Clethro's <laughs> paraphrase, I can't get away with nothing. Um, well, yeah, good, good paraphrase. Uh, I also thought of Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, even a context concerning the Word of God that judges the thoughts, intentions of the heart, and then the next verse is there's no creature hidden from his sight, right? But all things are open and laid bare to to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Another good passage on that particular doctrine. Yeah, Mark. Something I keep in mind frequently is the Ephesians 4.30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So not only before the face of God, but God is in us and personally experiences everything we do say and think. Yeah, for Christians, there is almost a a double sense of that weight, right? Good. Uh, I think two more. What other passages of Scripture teach us about biblical peace and how to have it? Just shout shout them out real quick. And then there's... I'll repeat it. Philippians 4, yes. Yeah. Isaiah 26.3. Yep, I think I quoted that in the sermon. Yes. Yeah, perfect peace. Yep. Matthew 10. Yes. Um, Not fearing specifically. Yeah, those who can kill the body. Um, How about Romans 5? Having been justified, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's perfect peace. Yep. And I would even throw in there, read, uh, you know, the high priestly prayer, John 16, the peace that Jesus gives to his disciples. Um, That would be another one. Last, last question, I think choir's out. How might we practically seek to grow in our love for God's Word? Any thoughts on this? Just to end on a practical note, how do you, if somebody came to you and said, look, I, I think I love God's Word, 
but I, I want to love it more. More love to thee, right? I want to grow this year. What? Hey, 2024, this is my New Year's resolution. I want to grow in my love for God's word. What advice would you give them? What counsel? Uh, read it more. Yes. Just that principle of remove and replace. So tell me what's going on in your life. And what are you going to remove to prioritize the word? I mean, that's, yeah. that's it. Yeah, that's good. Because even that passage I went to in First Peter 2, part of that is, therefore, laying aside all that remains of wickedness, long for the pure milk of the word. So there is a sense, even grammatically there, that, look, we've got to first uh, put off sort of appetites, perhaps, that are hindering us from even longing like we should. Yeah, that's good. Anything else? Go to church. Yeah, hear, hear the word preached, right? And, and here's, an, here's, I'll just, we'll end it here, but here's one uh, practical reason why, because when you go to church, you're taught how to read the Scriptures. I don't know if you know that, but that's like a sub-purpose that Carrie has and all your pastors have, every time we get up to teach and to preach to you secretly, not only are we wanting to communicate to you the truth in this passage, we're also wanting to clearly show you and model for you how to handle and study and understand and apply the Word of God. And so, uh, a lot of you know, actually, over your years of attending a faithful ministry like this one, especially ones that are committed to the exposition of God's Word, you may not know the terms, you know, and all the principles. You may not be able to articulate the hermeneutical principles behind how to interpret Scripture, but my guess is that you've picked up more than you realize. And so, yeah, there's a grace in your life uh, you know, Ephesians chapter 4, God has given to the church pastors and teachers to equip you, right, in that task. So, that's good. All right, let me pray for us, and we'll be dismissed. Father, we're thankful for the great treasure of your word. Cause us to love it more each and every day. Lord, help us to apply what we've learned and examine even our hearts so that we might know whether or not we belong to you, um, whether or not we love what you love, and hate what you hate. Lord, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for forgiveness of sins, that we can have peace with you because he did away with the enmity. He bore the penalty of sin on his own shoulders that we might draw near to you. And he's given, you've given us a new heart if we're in Christ, a heart that now can love what you say and command. And so may it be our delight to live for you and to obey all that you've written. Lord, help us to learn it in its entirety, and may you get glory from our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.